Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. tuned in to sci-fi fidelity the podcast that brings you monthly science fiction television discussions and interviews remember to follow den of geek on twitter and facebook at den of geek us and we are at sci-fi fidelity this is episode 14 for february of 2017 my name is mike and i'm dave and in this edition of sci-fi fidelity we'll be talking about apocalypses we'd least mind living in as our main discussion topic And the shows we'll be discussing include Colony on the USA Network, which began its second season on January 12th, and The Magicians on Sci-Fi, which also just entered its sophomore season a couple weeks ago. And then we have our interview, which is with Naren Shankar, who is the showrunner of The Expanse. A great, great interview that I can't wait to share with you guys. It's really a, a fun one to talk about what the real success is behind The Expanse besides the great actors and the great story. So I can't wait to share that with you. But this is an interesting time of year now because we've come full circle with Sci-Fi Fidelity, which has been now on the air for a year now. And we've come to some of the same topics that are in their sophomore seasons, like we said. And I hope we are able to bring a different flavor to it and show you where these shows have evolved. Because, man, both of these shows and the interview topic that we're talking about have really grown into their second season and are almost stronger than in their first strong seasons. Well, sure. Colony really caught us off guard with the season two premiere episode. Oh my gosh. I mean, it's just going crazy. So these are going to be very different from last year and still deserving of your attention, but we are going to be fairly spoilery since these are not new shows. So if you need to avoid spoilers by skipping over certain topics, here are the time codes for today's discussions. Apocalypse now. 220 The Magicians 2845 Colony 4138 The Expanse Interview 5903 All right, but as Dave said, the Super 6 topic this month is Apocalypse Now, as we're calling it. These are apocalypses that we wouldn't mind living in if we had to, but really that's just a framework for us to use to share with everyone our favorite apocalypses that have really been written very well and, and have a deep feel to them and really come across well on screen. Right. Because as Bonita pointed out in the Facebook group, like guys, I don't really want to live in any apocalypse. That's right. And of course we will be hopefully sharing these topics with our social media friends on Facebook and Twitter. And we would love for people to, to uh, chime in. And in fact, what was Bonita's, um, answer in the end even though she said she wouldn't want to live in any of them oh gosh i forget she might have said the hundred but i don't want to swear to that i think it was the colony and oh you're right colony actually is not going to be on our list since it's a discussion topic in general today but i think that would be 
one of my top answers, if not for the fact that we were discussing season two. But uh, there's a couple of categories that we wanted to talk about with regard to apocalypses. How does it break down? Okay. And it was interesting because once we sat down to examine this topic and, and really put some thought into it, I mean, you've certainly got your technological apocalypses. Uh, I'm going to talk about Dark Angel. Battlestar Galactica certainly falls in that category. The Hundred. I think actually most of our answers are in that category. <laughs> well, it, it does seem, although some cover more than one, uh, certainly we've got the viral apocalypse. Right. We, we've got the alien apocalypse okay uh, like uh, falling skies for instance environmental supernatural and and the one show i'm going to talk about uh, encompasses both environmental and supernatural and then of course nuclear where we just blow the hell out of the earth (laughs) yes and that one's getting it a little bit dated but interestingly it still does have some play especially in the currently starting season four of the hundred Interestingly enough, nuclear comes into it. In fact, they're playing with all kinds of different apocalypses in that show. But let's get to it, because basically you and I have both picked three of our favorites to highlight ones that we wouldn't mind living it. So as you describe them here, Dave, uh, at the end of whatever it is you want to describe for us, just let us know what is it that draws you to this particular apocalypse? So what are you going to start with? All right, I'm going to start with Dark Angel, which is a show that appeared on Fox Network back in the early 2000s, starring Jessica Alba and Michael Weatherly of NCIS fame. And what I really love about this show is is it certainly falls under the technological apocalypse, because the premise is that a pulse bomb, which I guess is essentially an EMP, has wiped out the electronic infrastructure, which for all intents and purposes has eliminated debt as well as wealth in the United States. Cool. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe not so cool. <laughs> well, not so cool if you're uh, one of the wealthy people, but for a lot of people, it was a chance to start over. The series finds us in post-apocalyptic Seattle, which really has all the flavors of a third world nation. So on the one hand, what I really like is the multicultural aspect of it, the open air markets that seem to be in virtually every episode. Uh, Certainly there's a nightlife that's kind of on the edge. And in fact, that's one of the things I like about this apocalypse, if you will, is, is that you're not running from zombies. You're not running from vampires. You don't have to worry about catching a disease. Now, granted, there are the genetically enhanced individuals that have escaped from their government-run facility, but they just want to be left alone. So they're not really a threat to the public, which is kind of cool. And, you know, I've always found it fascinating to live, theoretically, in a technologically <laughs> primitive world. Yeah. In which the knowledge is there, but it has to be recovered or rebuilt. Well, it's almost like it's trying to appeal to people's sense of simpler times. And wouldn't it be interesting if circumstances forced that upon us? Absolutely. And and there is technology slowly being brought back online. So there are television broadcasts, but it's certainly nothing like we know. But I guess what I really see in this show is that for a young person, which I most certainly am not, uh, somebody in their 20s, you know, as Jessica Alba's character, Max Guevara, is, it really is an exciting time. And there are no typical apocalyptic threats like zombies and viruses and things like that. But 
you do live life on the edge, which certainly when you're young can be very exciting. Right. And I think a big part of why life is on the edge is because people are trying to, to take advantage of the situation. The fact that there are limited resources and the fact that it's much more dangerous. Some people are going to do a power grab. And I think that's true in a lot of these that we're going to be talking about. Right. And, and on many levels, I think it is the quintessential cyberpunk. Oh, yeah. Which is definitely my favorite genre in sci-fi. Oh, cool. Well, yeah, Dark Angel is a good one. I didn't actually catch that one when it came out, but we have a couple that are coming from the vault. So I'm going to do mine that's not too old, but it is canceled. And that's Revolution, another technological apocalypse. And it does have some parallels to what you were talking about because Dark Angel was an EMP, correct? That's right. And Revolution wasn't exactly an EMP, but it did knock out all any anything that had electronics connected to it, whether it would be a car or the power grid or anything like that. So this particular show, which ran from 2012 to 2014, takes place in a post-apocalyptic near future, right around the year 2027, I believe, because it's 15 years since the worldwide electrical power blackout. And they do flashbacks to let us know how it originated. But what comes out in the course of the series is that this was caused by a scientific development that was supposed to combat terrorism, where you could selectively shut off the power of people who were a threat to America. And it just sort of got away with them. Right. As often happens, once certain people recognize the fact that this kind of a weapon exists, then, you know, all bets are off if they can get their hands on it. Right. And it's a nanotechnology, actually. So we had some really surreal moments in that show where people were trying to get the power back on. But in the meantime, what could we do to create a new power structure since the United States has dissolved? And I really liked the kind of Wild West feel to this apocalypse, where you had different areas of the nation being ruled differently, like the Georgian nation versus the Plains states and things like that. Well, sure, the Monroe Republic. And you really had the United States divided up into, I think it was about maybe six larger states, I guess, if you will, although they really were, were kind of semi-autonomous countries in and of themselves. Right. But I guess I would just wouldn't mind living there because it did seem like people could live their lives, albeit under totalitarian regimes in some case, and and really have some rough treatment from the military rule. But as long as you return to agrarian times, this was one like we were just talking about. It almost is trying to appeal to the idea of what if we were forced to return to simpler times? How would we do? And wouldn't it in some ways be better? In fact, in some ways, the young people that were born since the blackout or were young children when the blackout occurred are growing up without those preconceptions about entertainment and social media and things that are so all-encompassing in our lives right now. And when we were making this list and figuring out what which shows would make the cut, I felt this one had to be on there just because it just felt like a place that would be okay to live in if we were forced to do so. <laughs> so, All right. Well, let me take a look at my second show. And this show, I think, falls certainly under the technological but also the alien apocalypse. 
And that is, of course, arguably not only the finest sci-fi show of all time, but I, I think in some circles, maybe the finest television show, period. And that is, of course, Battlestar Galactica. Oh, yeah. And, you know, on one level, it's the traditional tale of the created rebelling against its creator, which I certainly find fascinating. But once the Cylons wipe out the human race via the destruction of the 12 colonies, Battlestar Galactica becomes a survival story as the 50,000 that are left in space remain to protect and promote what's left of humanity. So, you know, there there is that excitement again of being on the ground floor of rebuilding the human race. No, oh, that's true. And even though they really have to fight for resources, especially water out in space, the search for a new home is almost invigorating. Yes. And, and, and I'll get to the search for a home in a second. Admittedly, life on a battle cruiser has its downsides, but, yeah. <laughs> but food and you mentioned water, they do seem at, at various points to be running low on water, but they always find an ice planet somewhere. Yeah. So fulfilling the basic needs doesn't seem to be that big a problem. And it's exciting knowing that the goal is to find that mythical 13th planet Earth and then take up residence there. So as a viewer, that's just invigorating. Earth, that's where we started, guys. (laughs) But you mentioned that this was also alien. So I guess in a sense, you're saying that the Cylon force, besides being the created, is like an alien force when it blows up the planets the same way the overlords in falling skies did yeah now i i guess you could argue that's kind of pushing the alien but i guess i was looking at it like the alien the other okay which is certainly i I think a persistent theme in science fiction but but you're right it really is more technological because it's mankind's technology that rebels against him now speaking of the cylons you know of course there are cylons out there who are trying to destroy you so it's you know on the one hand again you're not running from zombies you're not running from vampires you don't have to worry about a virus but you do have to worry about the cylons knowing that they live among you in total anonymity and that can be somewhat disconcerting but on the other hand again kind of exciting especially (laughs) if you're dr gaius baltar oh yes he actually is wondering about his own sanity, of course, as well, but he can't be dissatisfied with the hallucinations that he's been given. <laughs> right. Some pretty awesome hallucinations, <laughs> at least the one in the red dress. That's All right. right. Now, like viral apocalypses, not knowing whether or not another person is infected remains an issue, uh, though ah. turning someone into a Cylon is not necessarily a threat. Like That's uh, true with zombies and all of that. But all right. So what do you got next? Yeah. So let's go off the beaten path a little bit because 12 monkeys as people who follow my other podcasts know is one of my all time favorite shows. I do a separate podcast called 12 monkeys uncaged. Check that out. If you are into this show, because this is a show that is really ramping up the apocalypse, mainly from the standpoint of they're changing it. So we, put this in the category of a viral apocalypse and certainly season one centered around trying to stop this virus from being released because it really comes out that this secret society called the army of the 12 monkeys released this virus on purpose. It was not something where it was a lab accident or anything like that. This was released on purpose and they're trying to track down the cause, the the people that released it initially and little clues become 
uncovered as a result of this. Time travel is, of course, key to this show, where they have to go back in time to prevent certain people from getting involved in the virus outbreak, while in the future trying to avoid the mutations of the virus that happened, because, of course, you could get sick even though you're quarantined in this time travel facility. But as the series progresses into season two, and season three will be coming up this summer, it gets away from that. The virus almost seems to be an afterthought where it's really a method by which the army of the 12 monkeys ensured that time travel would exist so that they could carry out an even larger agenda. And I imagine it's going to get even bigger in season three as they start to realize what the true intentions are. But at its root is this original virus because without the virus, there wouldn't have been time travel. They wouldn't have pushed for the perfection of the time travel techniques so that they could prevent the virus. So that's why it makes this list because it's a unique melding of two different subgenres, time travel and apocalypse. You had me at time travel, Mike. <laughs> hey. All right. Now the origin of the virus is called the night room. And as I've <laughs> said on several podcasts in the show, the night room is in the town in which I live in real life. That's right. So you are at the site of the future apocalypse, Dave. So ground zero for you. Well, I did call the local government and they didn't (laughs) seem to know what I was talking about when I asked for the location and address of the night room. But (laughs) But the reason I wouldn't mind living there, though, because it does seem that in season two, because the virus became secondary to the mission, it also seemed to become secondary in people's lives. And they do seem to wander outside a lot more. And there are pockets of survivors, certainly, and they're all fighting over resources. But if you just take the time travel facility itself and the scientists that live there and the people that are around, they're just cool people. And I think you could probably say that about a lot of these shows. Just a nice bunch of folks to hang out and have a beer. All right. Now, my third show is Van Helsing, which I covered for Den of Geek season one, and I'll be covering it again when season two comes back. We still don't have a return date for that yet. Now, Van Helsing is really a combination. You know, there's no maybes this time, environmental (laughs) and supernatural, because the premise here is that a volcanic eruption literally blocks out the sun And now that we're living, you know, not total darkness, but dark enough that the vampires who've been living in the shadows now have the opportunity to walk about during the day. And they are walking about indeed. So we've certainly got the environmental with the eruption and the supernatural with the fact that vampires exist, which is just, I I don't know, it's just a wonderful combination of these two. And look, anytime you do vampires you got to do something new. And I remember my first review, this is most certainly not your teenage daughter's Twilight. (laughs) Yes. No sparkly vampires here. But yeah, it was definitely interesting that they could meld these two because I wouldn't have thought this would be possible to go with the environmental apocalypse, which you would think would be more prevalent in the days of discussing the impacts of climate change and things like that, because the apocalypse doesn't come from that. It's not that crops won't grow and and the nuclear winter effects are keeping the planet from thriving, although I'm sure that's certainly the case, it's solely because of the secondary effect of having the vampires coming out of hiding 
that makes it a true apocalypse. So a really cool melding of subgenres. Right. And I mean, despite the fact that the vampires are looking to feed and turn others, I mean, look, Mike, there is something kind of hot and sexy about vampires. And in (laughs) the Van Helsing world, that's still there. But at the heart of it, though, is that quest for survival. And I, I guess what I like about this show and why I feel like I could live in this environment is that because the apocalypse is environmental in nature, it kind of seems plausible that there are safe zones out there because it's the ash, so much of it, that's literally blocking out the sun. And, and, and we know from history that that has happened before in Earth's history. So just the fact that you only have to safely navigate the vampires gives you a chance to find that safe zone because the show f- is focused in the Pacific Northwest. So you would think the farther east that you go, the less impacted it is. Oh, that's true. I I do get the sense that it is global in scale, but you're right. There should be patchiness, especially the farther you get away from it. And there's the hope that it could end someday and clear up because the earth will heal itself. Right. And that's, in fact, what's happening in the show as season one came to an end is that the vampires are starting to get concerned because that is, in fact, what appears to be happening. So I'm really looking forward to this show and seeing what they do with the environmental and the supernatural, which is unlikely marriage, but it it definitely works. And of course, the competing for resources while fighting off vampires, it's really key to it. All of these really have a dependence on while you're fighting your fight, you are having trouble getting food and water and electricity and things that you need for survival. So I, I just like that you can create levels of conflict for that. And that's certainly true for our last discussion point, which is the hundred. Now this show will be a discussion topic next month. We'll get into season four in detail. It just started its fourth season on February 1st, but it seems like every season, this show, the hundred decides how else can we obliterate the human race and make it harder and harder for them, no matter what they do. And it's interesting to note that the show started off in space. Right. And that was a big part of it. And now that's almost incidental, the fact that it started out in space. But the premise of this show is that 97 years after a devastating nuclear apocalypse wiped out all life on Earth. So I I guess we, we could even put this in the nuclear apocalypse category because of that. The survivors were thought to be only in Earth orbit on a series of 12 space stations. And after 100 years, they were supposed to be able to, or no, I guess after 1,000 years, they were supposed to be able to go back to Earth and it would be safe from the nuclear fallout. But they were running out of resources on these space stations, and so they had to make a choice. How are we going to get people back to Earth because we can't continue living up here in space? So let's send a bunch of kids, a bunch of criminal kids, down and see if they survive the radiation. And then if it's safe, we'll come down later. And that's the setup. But boy, has it gone far abreast of that original premise. Well, it really has. And, and you know, we find out, of course, that Earth is inhabitable, that there are some that have been living there the entire time in multiple types of scenarios. 
And I guess the thing that I love so much about this show, like any good science fiction, it's really about the human drama. And in this case, it's these young people, these teenagers that are placed in situations that no person of any age should be placed in. Yet these are kids left to fend for themselves and they rise to the task. And, and I, again, what's fascinating is once the adults come down to watch the conflicts that naturally arise there. Oh yeah. And in fact, that seems to be the threat more than anything in season one is the political back and forth between the adults and the vying for power among the teenagers when they get on the ground and I guess that's still true to a certain degree, but now it's become much more about the politics of the people who have survived on Earth for the past hundred years, the grounders who have their own political structure and tribes that are certainly warring with each other, but they live in a post-apocalyptic world themselves, but they don't consider it. It's because a hundred years has passed, they consider this to be the world that they've inherited. They don't look at it the same way as some of these other shows where the apocalypse was more recent might have felt about it. Right. Because in the most recent episode, the season four premiere, they even talk about the fact that, you know, Hey, we survived it once the grounders, that is we'll survive the radiation. Yeah. We're not worried. Then you also have people that actually did keep that original mindset in earlier seasons where Mount weather was in play. And this is probably why it makes the list for me. Cause I feel like, Mount Weather was something that could have gone right, and it just went oh so wrong in many different ways, because the folks that hold up in this emergency operations center located in the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains were safe from the nuclear fallout, but because they were sheltered and had a pretty good life with actual resources and even some culture that was left over from the world before— they weren't immune to the, they didn't build up an immunity to the radiation like the folks in space and the grounders did, which gave them their main weakness. But I almost feel like given the right circumstances, the Mount Weather folks could have rebuilt and truly been the post-apocalyptic culture come back from the world we knew. But in the end, I really like the grounder culture, the tribal nature and the the powerful people that are in these tribes are just cool when it comes down to it. Well, and again, what I find so compelling is the idea that what Clark and Sky Crew bring to the tribes is this idea that, you know, we need to work together for all of our survival. Now, the, you mentioned Mount Weather. I still hold out hope that there's another Mount <laughs> Weather type facility somewhere out there. All right. But, but that's probably not till season six or seven. Right. And of course, I talked about how they keep throwing different apocalypse twists because we had three examples of our six were technological in nature. Well, guess what? Turns out the nuclear holocaust was caused by an AI. <laughs> so yeah. in essence, technology comes into this one, too. So the strength of The Hundred as a show is that it just will beat you down, not only the people in the show, but the viewers, it'll get your hopes up and then dash them against the rocks. And yet you just come back for more. So I think that's why it works so well as an apocalypse, because it just takes you to the deepest depths of despair. And because it's such a deep despair, when there's moments of triumph, they're that much more sweet. 
So, all right. Well, why don't we get to the honorable mentions? Okay, there there are a few honorable mentions as as always. These shows didn't quite make the cut, but they deserve a mention. Dollhouse, of course, a technological post-apocalypse in the later part of that series. The most of that did not take place in that post-apocalyptic world, so I guess that's why that didn't make the list, right? Right, but it all led up to that point. Right. And then of course, one of the supernatural shows that didn't make the cut is Z Nation. But because of its comedic turns, I think of the zombie shows, you know, I don't think anyone would want to live in the world of The Walking Dead, but they might want to live in the world of Z Nation. So that's an honorable mention. Then a show that Dave and I have missed out on, but I know it's got a lot of good buzz and it just didn't fit into our schedule is The Last Ship. And that's a viral apocalypse where they're on on a ship trying to survive. And of course, that's very unique and deserves a mention. And Falling Skies got a couple of oblique mentions there as in our discussion, but it was a show that didn't make the cut as an alien apocalypse, a very fun show that I reviewed for Den of Geek. And last but not least, a comedy show that has really gained attention uh, recently, especially for its showrunners who have gone on to do other science fiction comedy shows. And that's The Last Man on Earth, in which the cause of the apocalypse is completely unknown, and I don't think they have any intention of letting us know what it is. So... Those are our honorable mentions. So apocalypses, a category of sci-fi that Dave and I certainly enjoy, and I'm sure most of our audience does as well. But let's take a different tack here, Dave. We're going to switch to fantasy for a moment. Now, this isn't fantasy fidelity. This is sci-fi fidelity. But The Magicians on Sci-Fi has really garnered some attention from the fans and has really taken off this past season doing something that most shows do not do, and that's get better ratings for its season two premiere than it did for its initial premiere. (laughs) But it's something that's definitely coming back strong. In fact, both of the shows we're talking about tonight, The Magicians and Colony, have really started off strong with their second seasons. And what we're going to talk about with these two shows is what we know so far, because we assume if you're listening to this portion of the podcast that you are familiar with the show and we don't need to go deeply into the premise, but what we know so far and where it's leading and how this season is different from the first season. So with the magicians, what we know so far is that we've got varying levels of knowledge between these various characters, Alice, Penny, Elliot, Quentin, Julia, all the different magicians that are in their twenties. These are 20 somethings. They find this hidden world of magic and they come together for graduate school to learn about magic. And the magic school is called break bills university, but they did spend season one, pretty much learning about magic and learning about each other, establishing the characters and establishing this main conflict. Now, obliquely we got mention of a series of books that the main character, Quentin Coldwater was a fan of. These books are called Fillory and further This is a series of books that's very similar to Narnia, where British children visit this mystical land by going through closets and grandfather clocks and things like that. And come to find out through the course of season one, it actually tells a true tale of children who did visit this mystical land. And the author of the books just witnessed it. And just like in Narnia, Earth children become this land's royalty. One of those children, Martin, 
wanted to overstay his welcome, but the world kept kicking him out. And so he became the beast all throughout season one. We're wondering who's the beast. And the big reveal there is that it's Martin. He wants to take all the magic for himself and in the process sort of sacrifices his own humanity. Meanwhile, his sister Jane Chatwin became the watcher woman. And the whole premise of season one is that she is traveling through time to use these 20 something uh, graduate students to try to stop Martin and they always get defeated and she just keeps resetting the timeline. This is the 40th time she's tried and now Jane is dead. So this is our last chance to get it right. And this time the variable that Jane has introduced is Julia, the hedge, witch, who is a character that I think a lot of people love to hate in the magician's fandom, but I think maybe she's going to come into her own in season two and beyond. So I can't wait to see how this story plays out. But this season has started out very differently, Dave, because now we are in Fillory proper and these graduate students are now royalty. (laughs) Yeah. And one of the things I like is that Elliot is, of course, the king of Fillory, but it's a situation where he really doesn't want it. I mean, he's he has a queen that he tolerates. (laughs) Yeah. High King Elliot the Spectacular has made his sacrifice. He cannot leave Fillory now that he's married and he's ruling as high king. Certainly the others are crowned in the season premiere. Margot and Alice and Quentin are the co-rulers of Fillory, but he's stuck there. And I really like this for the character because in season one, he was so despondent, always just drinking and feeling sad and sorry for himself. And now he's kind of going to be forced into a role that he's not used to and I think he's going to blossom because of it. Yeah. But again, despite that, which, you know, seems to have some positive outcomes, you know, there is that central concern that Margot has about being stuck in, as she says, some epic fantasy that likes to behead its heroes halfway through season one. If we even <laughs> are heroes, we might be comic relief. I love that self-referential humor. And humor is, of course, a big part of the success of The Magicians. I'll be honest, though, personally, and and you can see that my reviews of The Magicians on Den of Geek for season one have been uneven. I'm not always praiseworthy of it, but I don't want people to get the impression that I don't love The Magicians. I think the reason I give some episodes uh, lower ratings is because I have such high expectations for this series, because when it's good, it is so good. And in fact... The season premiere, one of my favorite parts was the coronation where they get their nicknames, Elliot the Spectacular, Margot the Destroyer, Alice the Wise, and Quentin the Moderately Socially Maladjusted. (laughs) Some great epithets, but uh, yeah, I think Margot presents a good case. Um, But Fillory has really opened up a whole new set of story possibilities for the show. So season two has this whole new set of plot lines it can follow. And the setting, the fantasy setting of Fillory this magical land, it makes it more appropriate to include some of the more ridiculous elements such as supernatural creatures, because I'll be honest, the 500 year old fairy that was flirting with Dean Fogg in the second episode of season two, she just lives in Rhode Island (laughs) and they had to solve a puzzle to get to her so they could get this powerful spell from her. I really did not like that scene. It's, it felt very awkward and, the humor as a result suffered. Well, and I think that's one of the issues that the writers must struggle with constantly is that 
it is a dark show, which I certainly like and I know you do, yet they do try to provide a little air of lightness. Look, it's not the librarians for sure. (laughs) It's not Warehouse 13. It is about magic and it is about so much more. And I think it kind of explores fantasies that the individual characters have as well. No, that's true. They each have their own motivations, of course, too. And I think we're going to see a lot of disparate plot lines, which is not unusual because we do have people going off on their own adventures. But now we've got a new set of dangers because in the premiere, when they're saving them from the really bad things that happened to them in the season finale last season, Quentin has to elicit help from strangers, including this candy house, witch, and she gives him this warning be careful with strangers. We only look whimsical. And that happens to be the case with Penny as well. As he gets his hands reattached that got cut off in the finale, he gets his hands cursed because he's kind of an ingrate to the person who helped him. And I think this is going to carry through where Fillory is not this happy go lucky wonderland. They have to be careful. And Penny often has his own story, but because of this cursed hand thing, it looks like, the trend will continue with him since he's not royalty getting his own little side plot. Now, I was just going to say one of the interesting things that I know you can probably speak to this in more detail than I can, because this whole idea of the time differences between earth and Fillory becomes a factor. Right. And it's interesting because he's worried that if they leave to go back to earth and he stays on Fillory, that it could be years. He may be an old man when they get back, even though it's been a few days for them. But so far, that hasn't been the case. And I have gotten a sneak peek at the third episode, which is airing this week. And it doesn't look like that's as big of a problem as he's thinking it is. But there are a lot of problems in Fillory. And one of them is that the armory in Castle Whitespire, where the royalty rules, has been completely emptied. But they do have hints that the knowledge they need is back at Breakbills. So it's not going to all be in Fillory. Breakbills still has a role. And like Sarah Gamble mentioned in our interview with her, Earth is where the hard-won magic is because Fillory is just natural. It infuses everything. But back on Earth, battle magic was banned. And that's a surprising fact for me. And of course, we knew that from season one. But how big of a mistake was this? Because even at Hogwarts in Harry Potter, they teach the dark arts so that you can defend yourself from them. So this is a... Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. I think a big mistake that's going to be have to be corrected moving forward for break bills. But I think episode three is going to just knock everyone's socks off. So the shortcomings of episode two, I think are completely negated by the wonderfulness that's to come. But we actually continue with another person on their own track and that's Julia. But now she's got her own plot line for a very different reason because she wants to wreak revenge on Reynard, who raped her and killed all of her friends 
from season one and has elicited Martin to help her wreak that revenge. And this is causing some amusing scenes. Certainly he seems amused to do her bidding, even though she's got him by the short hairs. She, he can't counter anything that she's asked him to do or work against her in any way. But he's trying to get her to cut out her own humanity as he did in order to survive the trauma that she's experienced. And I think as she goes about her mission, even though it kind of works counter to what the other folks are doing by trying to go after Martin, who's helping her, that it's going to really cause an awakening for her. And maybe she's going to end up being even more powerful than, than Alice or some of the more powerful magicians that are at break bills. Right. But at the heart, she's enlisting the aid of the beast to get to Reynard. Right. And that just doesn't sit well, especially since I think the very interesting thing that they've done here in season two is given Alice godlike powers that are temporary. So she was able to resurrect everyone that, that died at Martin's hand at the end of season one, but that power is not going to last. And so she can't cast this Reinemann ultra spell to defeat Martin for very much longer. So even if they wanted to help Julia use Martin to take down Reynard, they can't wait because Alice's power is running out. And that causes a great dynamic that was already very tense, not only between the Royals and Julia, but Quentin and Julia, who have been lifelong friends. But all of this is wrapped up in the fact that magic is dying because Martin has drained the wellspring too many times in Fillory. And once magic dies in Fillory, as it seems to be, because, of course, Elliot's using his shunned past as a farm boy to help the farmers grow crops with things other than magic. (laughs) But once it dies in Fillory, it dies everywhere. And it's kind of interesting because you would think Martin would know that. Isn't he concerned by this or is he blinded by his own need to be powerful? It seems like that might be the case. Yeah. And again, I I just thought that was a wonderful scene when he's trying to teach them about fertilizer. (laughs) Yeah. Oh yeah. Elliot and the fertilizer. Yeah. I, I, think it's really great that they're giving this character something to do besides feel sorry for himself. But exactly. But there are hints of a curse on the thrones of Fillory. Those people who have seen the previews for episode three know that that's coming into play. And because Martin can't be king himself, he wants to make sure that no one can rule Fillory in his place. And apparently other break bill students have tried this before. So I'm very anxious to see how this all clashes in episode three and moving forward because the magicians is just off to a, a rip roaring start and a lots of recognizable elements from the novels, which I had the pleasure of reading all three of them before the series started and just a great show and a great adaptation of a great fantasy that should appeal to not only Harry Potter fans, but fantasy fans in general. But we're really going to switch gears on your topic, aren't we? <laughs> yes, we are. We're going to talk about uh, the USA Network's colony created by ryan condal and carlton cues and and we know carlton cues of course from lost and this one airs thursdays at 10 as i said on usa network and it's back for season two and you know this is alien invasion of earth which is is certainly an apocalypse in its own right yep but as we said it's gonna kind of get its own platform here so what do we know so far now we do know that the aliens have come to earth and have built a wall that separates Los Angeles from the rest of the world. But 
in season one, we really don't have a good handle on the scope of this wall. We really haven't seen this wall. Season two opens with a flashback to before the alien takeover. And what was so great about this season two opening is that it threw us for a loop because we didn't know. I I mean, I don't know about you, but at first, for the first 15, 20 minutes or so, I thought this might be into the future rather than the past. Yeah, because Charlie was there, but I thought, okay, they've rescued Charlie because that was something that was happening in season one. So yeah, there was a little bit of a misdirect and it worked really well. But what I thought was very telling is that this flashback the prequel, if you will, would not have worked as a pilot, but it works brilliantly as a season two premiere. Right. Because I think it would have just been so pedestrian. Right. So, you know, we've seen this so many times before. And as you said, it just wouldn't have worked. I mean, we might have muddled through it because of the anticipation of the aliens coming, because that's what we were led to believe was going to happen in the show. But, but fortunately, we don't have to approach it that way. So we're in this flashback and we see Will with a different partner. Now, first, what one of the tip offs is we see Will wearing a suit, which <laughs> we, we never see in, in season one. In fact, just the opposite. But what we also know is that the aliens who we really still haven't seen except in some sort of a is it fair to call it like a powered suit, maybe? Yeah, almost an environment suit, like maybe they were breathing different air or something like that right but we've only i think seen the one so yeah there's still that mystery about what they look like but they've introduced really indoctrinated at first the young people with a religion of sorts and it seems to culminate in something referred to as the greatest day and what that actually means remains unknown. And, you know, I think we all have, you know, an idea that maybe it's going to be some sort of an ascension. Is yeah. it going to be some sort of a descension where the aliens show themselves? Is it going to be an, an extermination? <laughs> well, I, you know, I wonder if it's going to be something more along the lines of childhood's end, which right, if, right. if it is, they need to tread carefully because we don't want to just redo childhood's end. Right. <laughs> but it does have that feel to it. Right. We also know about the group known as the Red Hats, who are humans who are working for the occupation force, which to this point, you know, we've really only barely glimpsed. So not unlike what we saw in World War II Europe with partisans working with the Nazis when they would take over, merely for survival purposes, I, I guess you could say, we see that here as well. And they're known as red hats because they wear red uh, helmets. I get the impression that the red hats are the military or law enforcement part of the transitional authority, which also has its governmental pieces as well, right? Right. Now, looming in the background is something known as the factory. And getting sent to the factory, all we know is it's not good. <laughs> yeah. I feel like there was some kind of mention of the moon, like they were being shipped pretty darn far away and maybe it had something to do with the grander alien mission. But yeah, you do not go back from the factory. Right. So, so is there something on the moon that the aliens are mining perhaps manufacturing? I mean, again, we don't know. And that's, you know, as we're in the early stages of season two, we still don't have any kind of an idea of why the aliens came to earth 
and what they plan to do. And uh, look, I think any civilization that's intelligent and advanced enough to conduct interstellar travel, they didn't come here by accident, we wouldn't think. No, they have a goal in mind. <laughs> okay. So on one level, the show examines the individual that's placed in a position where looking out for him or herself seems to be the only survivable option. And that's, you know, something that's really become front and center for virtually every character in the show. And I, again, I find so compelling uh, Katie, who is uh, Will Bowman's wife, her decision to put her family at risk by joining the resistance to me is one of the show's core issues, because on the one hand, if nobody fights back, the invading army wins. But when you have three children, to me, it just makes it so much more complex a decision. Oh, yeah. And I think that is even more forefront in season two, as Katie starts to switch from being a hardcore resistance fighter to prioritizing her family. Right. Now, how is this season different? We, you know, we already mentioned the flashback. And, and as you mentioned, it, it was such a good decision to wait because the stakes are so much higher now. We know what Will's struggles are with his family. But we are introduced to his first partner, Devin, who, along with other FBI agents, are investigating a missing persons report. And you know, key figures are going missing. And it turns out that there are 1,200 people across the country that in the event of a catastrophe are to be sequestered to reboot society, not unlike Mount Weather, I assume. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but all electronics, including cars, stop working, which, of course, we learn is, is due to the aliens. Will's warned his wife to get the kids. And now we get to see. And again, you mentioned what a good decision. We see how it is that Charlie got left behind the wall because all we knew in season one was that Charlie in all the chaos and confusion. And when we see what really happened, it's perfectly understandable. It doesn't assuage the guilt that the parents must feel, but it's certainly understandable. Yeah. I mean, he just didn't make it there in time. I like how Charlie, when he is finally rescued says, why didn't you get me? Why didn't you come get me? And of course that makes Will feel very guilty but there's no way seeing what we saw that anyone could blame him for not making it there in time. He was booking it down the streets of Los Angeles when those walls fell. Right. Now, in season one, we follow Alan Snyder, who's part of the transitional authority. And he's one of the ones that's initially tabbed by the aliens who, I guess, to a certain extent, he's blackmailed into it. Like, I guess a lot of them are. He's able to sequester his daughter tries to get his wife to leave L.A., but I guess since they're divorced, she still doesn't trust him. Well, he's such an interesting character because he was just a guy who worked at the central office of a school system buying textbooks. So how did the algorithm that the aliens were using tap this guy to be the leader of the L.A. block? And because he's not in that position anymore in season two, but rather the head of a prison facility that Bram Bowman is in, he starts to show some of these qualities of knowing how the power game is played that maybe explains a little bit about why the aliens chose him. Well, yeah, I mean, I got the impression that he had a knack for discreetly moving numbers yeah. in his job in the school system. All right, so we're 
in present day, the different areas are called blocks, and we're in the Santa Monica block. Will's trying to find Charlie, but he gets run off by this little paramilitary warlord, and, and we learn that Charlie is basically you know one of these kids that works for these warlords using children to fight their battles and run whatever commodity is that they're running. We find that Bram, when he was trying to go under the wall, is caught by the Red Hats and is now in, in a work camp, which I guess is better than going to the factory. Katie, her sister, tried to call in some favors, but it's every man for him or herself. And, you know, it's almost to see Bram released wouldn't ring true. It would almost be too easy. Right. It, well, it gets its own plot line. And that's what's so great about the Bram storyline. His thing with the science teacher was fun in season one, certainly. And he was getting drawn into a resistance stance as well, just like his mother. But I find this prison storyline so much more compelling. Now, they haven't given us a whole lot of details about it. We have this girl who seems to have some kind of agenda going on with regard to Bram. That's interesting. I love seeing Bram and former proxy Snyder trying to work out a deal to get this prison working as ship shape as possible in order for them both to get what they want. And it's really something that wasn't present in season one. So it's a completely different take on these two characters that just works really well. Right. And, and, you know, the tone is so much darker, you know, that decision that Will makes to get his son, Charlie, back from the gangs was, you know, on the one hand, pretty surprising. But again, it's like if a man is pushed too far, that's how he's going to react. And, and, and even later, when Katie wants to know what he did, how did you get our son back? He's like, you don't want to know. <laughs> yeah. He's had to do some pretty brutal things in season one, even when he took out Quail, the head guy of the resistance who was about to give up Broussard and Katie. So we know he's capable of this type of violence, but it was still quite shocking to see him take out the entire gang once he finds out how they've been treating Charlie. Right now, I don't know if we're going to revisit 1969. Yeah, that was weird. Yeah, we get that flashback to 69, the moon landing, the astronauts reporting that they hear music. Ground control isolates the audio and determines that it's some kind of a message. So we're led to believe there's some sort of a connection, but we don't know. So I would certainly think it will get revisited in season two at some point. If not, why put it in there? Yeah. Like the transitional authority, how far back does this thing go? Like who knew what and when? It's very surprising that they would hint at it. And it's dropped in so small and just left to our imagination. Right. Now, the story that's really captivated me the most, and, and that's Will's current partner, Jennifer McMahon. I mean, she's not really suited for the job she's been placed in, and that is brought up by her new boss several times. You know, I don't know that you have what it takes, and she wants to prove him wrong. But basically, she recognizes pretty early on that if she's going to survive, if she's going to keep her boss happy, then she's got to turn in people that she sees as friends, which certainly includes Will Bowman. She she pressures Will's wife, Katie. 
for information. You got to give me something. My bosses aren't going to accept that you don't know anything. And it's this, this constant game of sleight of hand that she's really not prepared to play. And when we meet her new boss, I mean, he essentially calls her bluff, but it's just been fascinating to watch her as she watches the surveillance cameras in Will's house. I don't know about you. I was a little surprised it took him that long to find out that there were cameras in his house. Yeah, I thought they would have known that. But yeah, she certainly gets a very clear indication of the strong bond that this family has. And she, being by herself, doesn't have that. Causes a lot of emotional strife for her to the point where in the most recent episode, we don't know what her fate is going to be because she looks like she's ready to end it all. Yes, she does. I mean, that, that, you know, we see her take the first pill, maybe a second pill, but she's got an entire bottle there and, and we know what's led up to this point. So I really hope something happens to stop her because she's really become one of my favorite characters. And this is one of my favorite storylines uh, in the episode because of her relationship with Katie and her relationship with Will. So I, I'd really like to see something happen there where, where the three of them can work together. But, you know, we talked about Will going to find his son, Charlie, and the way they find to get back on the other side of the wall. Interestingly enough, it's Charlie who says, well, we need to find a mule. Coyote, yeah. <laughs> a coyote, I'm sorry. And it's basically rappelling over and down the wall, which is huge. Yeah, they find a spot where it's marginally less tall, but quite marginally. <laughs> right, and there are like, I think, four or five of them that are going up, and for whatever reason, one of the, the TA drones spots them, obliterates all of them except... Charlie and Will, and even as Will says, I have no idea why we weren't killed. And I think it was Will because he was holding on to Charlie. Will was spared. If Charlie had been by himself, I think he would have been obliterated too. So what is it about Will that the benevolent overlords or whoever is behind that drone would spare him? Very interesting. And that's going to be, I think, a big mystery going forward in season two. Right. Now, you know, you mentioned the dynamic with Bram in the prison camp. The other dynamic that's going on is with Katie's sister, Maddie. But the greatest day is kind of becoming more front and center, whereas in the past it was just something mentioned in Gracie's children's book. But now Maddie gets inducted into this elite circle. And then we see this little glowing box and we're wondering, okay, what does it actually do to her? But you know, we've got these worship centers. Is she brainwashed? Again, we're given little bits and pieces, but the stories are moving in the right direction, which is certainly something a show like this has to do. Well, it's just amazing to me that they could take this show from season one to season two, and pretty much every character is doing something different from what they did in season one. I think Will, in fact, is probably the least changed, <laughs> ironically enough. Yeah. And speaking of changes, now that they have Charlie back, his ability to reintegrate into the family, into this kind of a life, is really going to be interesting. But, you know, maybe his asking his mom to cut his hair is the first step, or is it a ruse on his part? I think he is a warrior. I think he sees the truth. He looks at Lindsay, the indoctrinator of Gracie, the tutor, 
that wants her to be part of the, the greatest day and sees BS and yeah. knows how to get rid of her. So I think this PTSD, although will cause him problems, I think they're greatly underestimating Charlie's abilities that he's gained by being in Santa Monica. Right. And I think what's going to have to happen is that Will and Katie are going to have to come to the realization and acceptance that this boy of theirs is no longer a boy. And he, I think, is going to become a useful member of the team that's going to do whatever it is they're going to do. But, you know, a great start to season two, no question. All right. So both of these shows as sophomore seasons, definitely not a sophomore slump (laughs) and uh, can't wait to see where they go. So hopefully the listeners out there are following these shows and are anxious to see what happens just like we are. The Expanse is the next show we're going to be going into via our interview segment. And this show is also in line with the shows we discussed in that it is in its second season again, just hitting on all cylinders right out of the gate. And what really struck me as we go into this interview segment is that we have a showrunner who hasn't been in the forefront. You might not know the name Naren Shankar off the top of your head, like you would for some other showrunners. But the fact of the matter is he brings some really unique qualifications to executive producing this super realistic space drama because he not only has show run shows before with scientific knowledge, as you'll find out in the intro that comes with this interview, but he actually also has some scientific knowledge that's particularly applicable to the series. So let's go ahead and go into our interview with Naren Shankar. The subject of this month's interview segment is the showrunner for The Expanse, Naren Shankar, whose sci-fi writing and producing credits run very deep. From Star Trek The Next Generation to Farscape and from CSI to Almost Human, he has been a key player in some of our favorite shows. And now he's putting his PhD in applied physics to good use in the ultra-realistic space drama The Expanse, which began its second season with an epic two-hour premiere on February 1st on Sci-Fi. Welcome to Sci-Fi Fidelity, Naren Shankar. Hi, how you doing? Very good. Uh, I have to say, uh, that intro that I just gave you, I'm wondering if I'm correct about that, because I love what you do with gravity on this show, whether it's the effects of acceleration or zero-g maneuvers or spin gravity. Is it true what I said there? Does your PhD in applied physics come in handy? And also electrical engineering, by the way. Can't forget that. Um, (laughs) You know, I think weirdly enough for this show, it it, kind of does. It certainly means that I, I, you know, certain things don't have to get explained to me. I I don't know if you've read the novels, but uh, Ty Frank and and Daniel Abraham are collectively James S.A. Corey. They're both very technically minded and they bake that into the books. And I think that when when I was brought in to, to run the series, I think it was just a happy marriage because maybe a lot of people would have shied away from doing it the way that we've been doing it. But but my feeling was we had the opportunity to turn space into a character in, in this show in a way that it really hadn't been done before or had been done so incredibly wrong so many times. <laughs> you probably, <laughs> probably have to go back to the guy who got it right was Stanley Kubrick in 2001. And that movie was made in 1968. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's given the show, I think, a really unique signature and um, and people just seem to love it. We did it. We did a panel actually at Caltech last night about the science on the expanse. And, and the science people are just they're 
when you know conservation of momentum gets a big cheer from the audience, it's <laughs> like you go, "Wow, all right, I guess we're, we're speaking to uh, to our tribe here." <laughs> <laughs> well, you've been on uh, the writing staff of several of the Star Trek spinoffs, as well as one of our favorite shows of all time, Farscape, all of which take place in space, like The Expanse. So is there something that draws you to space drama in particular? And how does the experience of producing this show differ from those others? Boy, thanks for the shout out to Farscape. Um, it, that, was, that was an absolutely delightful show and, and really a beautiful, beautiful series in so many ways. And um, I find myself drawn to the genre constantly. I grew up loving the original Star Trek series. It's probably one of the reasons I became an engineer. I think it, I think it inspired me the way it did a lot of scientific people. It always seems to be a touchstone. And so when I came into the business and I got my start in Star Trek The Next Generation, that was kind of like a dream come true. And I spent probably about the first 10 years of my career on on those shows, on Star Trek, on Farscape, on The Outer Limits. And after at that time, I think science fiction in Hollywood was considered a little bit more of a it was it was a little ghettoized actually it was more of a you know a specialty niche genre kind of a thing that didn't translate to other things and so just to broaden my experience in the business I started branching out and they ended up doing cop shows for a long time um you know, running CSI for eight years I guess that's a pretty sciencey show as well I guess in some <laughs> yeah, way that's right <laughs> um but what happened was after I left CSI I really was feeling that pull of genre because I thought um, I absolutely adored Battlestar Galactica. I was very jealous of my good friend Ron Moore for, for I really wished I'd been on that show with him um, because and that was like happening at the same time as CSI. And, um, and I just felt the pull back to the genre because what you were able to do visually on screen had expanded so massively. You know, it enabled you to, to realize it at a visual level uh, in a way that it had never really been done before. Um, and when the expanse came along, it was just really you know, exactly the right time with the right people, and um, and here we are, season two. Well, now you mentioned Battlestar Galactica, and the space battle in the season one episode CQB was one of the most amazing things I've seen on TV. And now in the premiere, <laughs> we've got another magnificent battle with the Rasenante getting holes punched into it. So, how are you able to work with the visual effects guys to give the expanse this signature look to make it different from, say? Battlestar Galactica or Star Wars, where we see those same kind of dogfights? You know, it's really one of the things that was that I wanted to do from the very beginning, because as enjoyable as Star Wars is, and Battlestar Galactica did some things differently, but at the end of the day, what they really were, were, you know, newsreel footage, World War II fighter carrier battles in the Pacific. That's what it was. And the ships moved that way. Galactica did some things that were really cool that, that moved much more like real spaceships. But at the end of the day, they had gravity plating and all that stuff that, you know, that it doesn't matter. It, 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 and, and actually, in reality, it wasn't even important to what that story was because that's, that's not what it was about. But with The Expanse, the way Ty and Daniel wrote it and the way I wanted to capture it on screen was when space is a character, when you really delve into it, you don't have tractor beams. Lasers are shitty weapons. <laughs> you don't have deflector shields. The best way to hit to hurt something is to throw something at it incredibly fast. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> these are kinetic energy weapons, and this is like you know our battles are basically battles from the age of sail, and the distances are vast. 
um, how you approach things is is completely different, and it never really been captured uh, in a series before. And so it was a great opportunity. And so you know, I, I work really extensively and, and intimately with uh, Bob Monroe and his visual effects team to capture that because our ships. If you watch the battle in the second part of the opener, it's like it's all done on maneuvering thrusters, basically. It's like because they're moving around each other. They can't go really fast. They have to be around a station. You know, you're respecting the gravity when it turns on and off when you're uh, not on thrust or when you're in thrust. And it's really beautiful when you see that ship getting hit, even to the extent of like the trail of particles behind them. And when the ship hits thrust, all of the particles go down. Right. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) There's a level of detail in it that is just so much fun because it doesn't have all of the typical jargon and, you know, fire phasers now and photon. None of that stuff is there. Shields up. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, and we really try so hard to make sure that that stuff is right. Like, you know, you, you referenced CQB, that scene. We had to talk to the directors about how fast the railgun is moving. Because it was hard to, for them to understand. It's like literally, literally what happened was you're in mid-sentence and then boom. It just goes it's go, boom. It just goes right through the cabin because it's going at an appreciable fraction of the speed of light. And, and as a result, the way it's conveyed in the show is you're sitting there talking to somebody and the sentence just stops and suddenly he doesn't have a head. Right. <laughs> and, and, and there are two holes in the compartment where none were before and you've barely heard anything and you look up and there's a line that goes straight through the ship out into space. So those things you never get to see on television and it's so much fun to be able to do them because the drama is all still there. The battles are all still there. They just haven't been, been expressed this way before. Well, now you mentioned that space is a character. I almost think gravity is a character as well. But Yes, but absolutely. In general, it's the characters themselves that draw any viewer into the show. And we've got some great relationships that are starting to get fleshed out. But we still have a lot to learn about people like Amos and Fred and Alex and some of the others. So what are some of the backstories we'll be seeing in season two, generally speaking? Well, you're, you're right. Look, I mean, all of this visual beauty is nothing without the characters and the people at the center of it. And I think the big, you know, not, not maybe not a big change, but a significant change in season two is, you know, because of the fact that we don't have as much world building as now the universe has been established, it allowed us to really delve into the relationships. So, yeah, you're going to see much more about Amos. You're going to learn much more about Alex and Holden and Naomi, their relationship together, their relationship with Miller. It's, you know, we were able to really drive into the stories in a way that we weren't quite able to as much last season because last season was constructed around like a mystery conspiracy. And, and as a result, it's a lot of ball hiding. You know, if you're talking about storytelling, it's like, it's not that guy. No, it's not that guy. It's the guy behind that guy. It's like, that's sort of like what tends to happen. But by collapsing the threads, having Miller join Holden and the crew at the end of season one, it enabled us to put season two much more into what I feel is, is better storytelling, which is forward momentum. It's action and reaction. And you're with the characters and you're not playing so much like trying to fool the audience or hide the truth. That kind of juggling act is not necessary anymore. And it enables you to spend much more time with them as human beings. And I think that that, that comes through in the show. It also allows you, of course, to add 
another faction and talk about sides because you've got the MCRN Marines, Draper, Hillman, Travis, and Saeed, and that adds that much-needed Martian perspective to what we saw from Earth and the Belt last season. So what can you tease about where the Mars storyline might be headed in the season to come? Well, yeah, I mean, you're pointing out really the big thing in season two is, you know, season one, we spend a little time with the Martians. We establish them as a force, but we don't really get their perspective. And, you know, the uh, the season premiere, there's a reason we started it with Bobby and her team on Mars. And that was to, to really clearly announce that here's a new perspective. We dive into why Earth and Mars are in conflict how each side views the other, the suspicion, the enmity, all of the things that, that exist between people in different nations and different systems of government and why they often lead to conflict, we drive right into that stuff. And it's a big part of the season. In a way, there's a handoff, is that Bobby starts the season as what appears to be you know, a secondary character, and her importance grows significantly as the season goes on. And it was really a great thing because it did seem to balance out the narrative in a really good way. It put everything on equal footing. And I think as a result, it more clearly describes the world in which we're living in, in the expanse now than we did in season one. Now, of course, a big reason that you're able to build from that is because you have five novels. Well, I guess... Now six to work from since yep. the last, mm-hmm. last one came out in December. Mm-hmm. Does this actually make breaking the season in the writer's room easier or is it more restrictive? Because so far it's been remarkably true to the source material. And is it going to get farther abreast as we go through future seasons? It makes it easier and makes it harder, you know, <laughs> at different times. And you know, the funny thing is, is that it, I've heard people describe it that way. It's a really faithful adaptation. It's a kind of a faithful adaptation. It's extremely faithful to the spirit of the books, and it's very faithful to the big plot moves. But if you read the books very, very closely, we have changed chronology. We have brought characters forward. We've invented storylines. We've done a lot of things quite differently. Yet, we end up in the same places. And we've incorporated the novellas. We've done any number of things that don't actually exist in the novels. But... It's one of the great things about having Ty and Daniel in the room with us on staff because it enables us to deepen and enrich the story in a way that kind of a a more plot-focused action-adventuring novel tends not to do as much. But Ty and Daniel are there to make sure we don't break anything going forward. (laughs) (laughs) And so it's actually a really nice combination. But I don't know how often or, or how common it is in this business to have the novel authors like on board that way and to their credit so incredibly open to adapting their work to a completely different medium and understanding the different needs really really well i think what it's enabled us to do is make a very faithful to the spirit adaptation of the expanse but giving it its own identity in a way that the fans really do seem to be responding to And I'm sure, uh, like me, most of the fans are very happy that we finally are getting an explanation about the proto-molecule. And so we're very much looking forward to seeing where season two heads. But thank you so much for talking to us today, Naren Shankar, because we're right in the thick of it now. And The Expanse continues its run on Wednesday at 10 p.m. on Sci-Fi. 
So thanks again. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure. All right. So a lot of great tidbits there and some explanations for why this show has taken this unique, realistic, scientific view that has not only given the show a unique signature, but also fits really well with such a deep storyline and some great characters. And with the two hour season premiere, you know, they got it all out there. Oh my gosh. Yes. And more greatness to come as I get my advanced copies to review for Den of Geek. I can tell you it only gets better. So all these shows are definite must follows. Uh, We hope you enjoyed our discussion of these shows as well as our apocalypses. But that's going to be it for this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity. You can keep it going all month long by following us on social media or on Facebook and Twitter as Sci-Fi Fidelity. And in March, we're going to discuss Humans, Season 2 on AMC, and, as Mike said, The 100, Season 4, which airs on The CW. But in the meantime, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you access it. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Plus, we'd love your answers for the next Super 6 topic. Once we announce it, just use the Super 6 hashtag on Twitter. That's S-U-P-E-R-S-I-X. Or respond to us on the Facebook group. That actually might be the preferred method that Bonita used. And thanks again for listening. We'll see you next month.